Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. We are back to start Chapter 4 of Peace. This chapter will take us through seven recap episodes, plus a discussion episode. I should say at least one discussion episode. <laughs> um, I, I expect we'll, we, we might end up doing two. Time will tell. But uh, this episode is our first one, and we will be covering pages 203 to 212 in the Orb 2012 edition of the novel. Yeah, this is a really, really long chapter. So we are going to be on it for quite a while. But this is really fun, really exciting, because this is our first recording back on this show after a very long break that we took so that Brandon could have some parental leave. And over those months, uh, this is really awesome. Over those months, all of you listening helped us reach two really exciting, really cool crowdfunding goals on Patreon. And so right now, we are doing two bonus series over on Patreon. We'll tell you about the second one next time so that we're not doing two at once here. But uh, the first one that we hit was for me and Valerie to do a series on the four Star Trek The Next Generation movies. This is something that we had put up for a vote among our Patreon supporters. I had been hoping that we would get to do the original series films, really just so that I could talk about the extent to which Star Trek The Motion Picture is an adaptation of Gene Wolfe's story, Alien Stones. <laughs> but uh, still, I'm sure that I will find some way to squeeze some Gene Wolfe talk into at least one of these TNG movies. And, uh, you know, even if I can't do that, I am at any rate very excited to be doing that series with Valerie. Yeah, that is super exciting. It'll give me an opportunity to watch these movies, which I haven't done yet. In fact, I have about like eight episodes left of TNG to finish, which has been um, about a seven-year journey. I guess I'm watching it in real time. Um, <laughs> so I haven't gotten to the movies yet. I am so excited to hear you and Valerie go through this series and and talk about them. But we are here to talk about peace. And we're doing the opening of chapter four, as we talked about. This opening is going to introduce us to a new family in, in Cashinsville. So, Glenn, why don't we just get right into it? Right. Chapter four is titled Gold, and we will see what that refers to. We'll see why it's called that in just a moment. But the chapter actually opens with one small paragraph. It's just three lines, and I'm just going to read them. And now this card. A figure writes at a table. Another peers over his shoulder. What do you make of this card, Mr. Weir? Can you tell me a story about it? And that's it. That's that's the paragraph that opens this chapter. And maybe what we're about to read is that story. This is certainly something that we have surmised before about this book, and or, or portions of this book anyway, and maybe it's been true. But this also seems like it is an image of us. It's an image of our relationship as readers, our relationship to this book and to the person who is writing it. Right. I mean, before we get into that, though, I, I have a few things I want to say about this chapter. There are a lot of callbacks in this chapter to the previous portions of the book. And this chapter really opens up the novel for close readers. I, I'm at the point, you know, in reading this novel where I'm genuinely concerned about how chapter five will completely reframe my understanding of this text. So I guess that's just a disclaimer. I'm going to try to point out as many of these kind of callbacks as I can, and, and we'll try to figure out what they mean or what Wolf is doing when we get to the discussion. But to return to what you were talking about, Glenn, yeah, Weir is back with Dr. Van Ness. He's being given the thematic apperception test. We're still being given it. And the image on this card echoes, I think, what we see in chapter one 
where Kate is telling Hannah the Banshee story, and then Kate sees Den behind Hannah, plus someone else that Hannah can't see. And we kind of thought that was just the way the audience was being brought into the text. So yeah, I agree with you. This is a layered image that doesn't only like reach out to us from the book as the audience who is watching Weir write this book, but maybe also refers back to one of the more inscrutable passages we came across early in the novel. You're absolutely right about the number of callbacks that we're going to be getting in this chapter. And it's very clear at this point that there's a real deliberate structure to the way that Wolf has written this. You know, it's five chapters. So you know, chapter three is the middle chapter. Chapter two and chapter four are doing some of the same things. In fact, a lot of the callbacks from chapter four are going to be back to material in chapter two. They are both very long chapters and about the same length. And then chapter one and chapter five are also about the same length. You know, even though we, we haven't read chapter five yet, haven't done that yet, we can see that just by looking at the table of contents, that there's a definite sort of parallel structure here, the way that Wolf has done that. And we can see that in uh, not just the length and so on, but as we're getting into chapter four, we're starting to see that working in the narrative itself. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's cool. It's an excellent technique. Certainly, certainly that will be a discussion point in our, our wrap-up <laughs> episodes for sure. But as I said, this chapter is called Gold. And so the, the next section, which is really the full section that we're going to be recapping today, that section is about the Gold family. And the opening line is, the Golds were not native to Cashinsville, and it was seldom remembered that no family was. And I really, really love this line. I think Wolf has perfectly captured a particular short-sighted and narrow-minded perspective that I think most of us have in kind of our, our daily lives. But uh, really, this is basically the same perspective of every Lovecraft story, and that is an idea that we're going to return to in a few episodes. At any rate, right now, let's go meet the Golds. The Golds are a nuclear family. There's a dad, there's a mom, two kids— they came to town in a rattling pickup truck and an old Buick and moved into a commonplace brick house. Eventually, we will meet Mrs. Gold, but that's not going to happen actually for a few more episodes. But in introducing Mr. Gold to us, Weir explains that the family was supposed to be Jewish. Uh, those are, are Weir's words. That's a, a quotation from the text there. And then he goes on to say that despite that, they exhibited few of the traits that Weir has been told to associate with Jewishness by pop culture. Though, nonetheless, Mr. Gold does have a vague accent that might have come from anywhere east of the English Channel. Uh, this is another great line from Wolf there. Mr. Gold is a machinist and a tool and die maker, and he took a job at what Weir calls the Juice Factory, but he only worked there for a year before he left that job to go open a bookstore in downtown Cashinsville. And we're going to have a lot to say about this store a little bit later. But there are two things here on this first page that I think we should pause and talk about. So let me just catalog them quickly, Brandon. One is that it turns out that Weir works at this juice factory as well, and that Julia Smart is the owner. And so finally, we have learned what is the business that Julia Smart founds. It's, it's this business. It's, it's juice. He makes juice. And the other thing that we learn here is that as Weir continues to describe the Gold family, and, and we'll actually meet some of them in a, a few minutes, I promise, but as he continues to describe the family, he says that there was no family face, by which he means that they don't all resemble each other. But I could not read that phrase, Brandon, without thinking of the, the phrase planetary face from the fifth head of Cerberus. Yeah, th there's at least one other 
major descriptive overlap with Fifth Head in this chapter, even in this section. Uh, that we'll see in a little bit. And, and for a while, I've pointed out, and I, I honestly can't remember if we've done it on or off mic, that there is a lot in this book that is a retread of some ideas and themes that Wolf was developing in the Fifth Head of Cerberus and kind of finding them at play in this book um, and reflecting back on Fifth Head is a really great experience because it feels like the more you dig into Wolf's oeuvre, the more you get out of it. Like reading Wolf, the pleasure of reading Wolf to me is like no longer limited to revisiting one or two books or series of his that I really love. This project has made me just really want to continue on reading all of Wolf because I as a reader have been endlessly rewarded with reading so many of his works. I think we have alluded from time to time, Brandon, that there are some real parallels with Fifth Head. Certainly, uh, even back in Chapter 1, when we had a pretty healthy dose of Dante, I think we brought that up. But I do suspect that we mostly have had those conversations off mic, where I think you have said things like, it's the exact same book. And uh, <laughs> that certainly also is going to be a big topic of conversation in the the wrap-up episodes when we're when we're all done with this book, because clearly there there is, I mean, that's, you know, being a little bit tongue-in-cheek, just put it exactly that way. But there is definitely something to that. And it's going to be a lot of fun to try to break that down, try to overlay them and see how that can help us read both books, how, we, how each book can help us read the other. But also to think about, you know, the Gene Wolfe of the early 1970s. Well, I'm going to return to the text here. And I'd say it's really no surprise to me that we're you know, having grown up fascinated with the people that existed in, you know, what is now called Cashinsville before his family arrival, before Europeans arrival. And it's no surprise to me that Weir is really sensitive to the notion that nearly no one in America is native to the land, you know, nearly no one. But I think what Wolf or Weir here is pointing out, maybe Wolf is pointing it out and Weir is just demonstrating it, is that there are always reasons to label someone as other. And I think Weir has reason to label the Golds as other, as we'll find out later on in their book. And their heritage is just maybe one of the reasons why Weir wants to mark out the Golds as kind of being separate. Right. There's a lot going on with the Gold family. In fact, I'll, we haven't even met this character yet, but I'm going to say right now that that Mr. Gold is probably one of my favorite characters in this book. I'm fascinated by him, and clearly Weir is as well, and I guess then also by extension, Gene Wolfe is fascinated with this character <laughs> also. Yeah, and, and let's talk about this juice factory here a little bit. Yeah, it, it is a juice factory that Julius Smart started. We're going to learn more about the factory throughout this chapter and get these little drops of information. But Wolf has confirmed the name of the factory, you know, which is never mentioned in the text. And the product that they make in subsequent interviews about this work, we're going to hold off until our wrap up for chapter four to reveal that uh, for listeners who don't already know. And eventually, we're going to get to see a little bit more about that business, including some of the decor, which is something I'm really <laughs> excited to uh, to talk about because it's very much on brand, and that's going to be uh, pretty cool to 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 think about. And is I think one of the things that uh, uh, makes Peace uh, more cinematic, perhaps, than some of uh, some of Wolf's other books, which is perhaps something we should also take up in one of our wrap-up episodes. But uh, let's carry on with this section here. So the bulk of this section is going to concern uh, Mr. Gold, it's going to concern his bookshop, also the library, and finally, a name that we have not heard in a long time, Stuart Blaine. 
But before we get to any of that, let's go meet Mr. Gold's children. First is Aaron Gold. Aaron works at the juice factory as well. And in fact, he works in Weir's section. We learn here also that Weir is an engineering technician. Uh, He works on the bottling and and case packing machines. What he does is repair them, although he also tries to improve them as well. And so Aaron works in his section. He does some of these same jobs, but essentially his job is to go to the factory floor and repair machines on the spot, and then also to assist Weir when he's tinkering around in the workshop, trying to find ways to make the machines better, to improve them in some way. Aaron is very talkative. This talkativeness is his chief characteristic, and Weir tells us that this is the reason that Aaron has no future with the company, because it turns out that middle management hates talkative people. And Weir characterizes this talkativeness as vain and shallow. I mean, those are are my words. But Weir says that after two years of working with Aaron, he knows all about Aaron's taste in movies and cars, but then doesn't know anything about Aaron's family or his interiority, anything that really matters. And so there's a sense here that Aaron is a lot of sound and fury. Aaron also has romantic relationships with a lot of different women. Often, these are women he meets on the factory floor while he's down there repairing the machinery. And Weir does not say so, but I think subconsciously, maybe he links this to Aaron's chattiness, right? Aaron makes casual friends very easily because he's talkative, but that sort of chattering does not appeal to loner engineers like Weir, and possibly also Wolf himself. The second gold child is Aaron's younger sister, Sherry. In this case, Sherry is short for Shirley. Now, This is a callback, of course, right? We have actually encountered Sherry Gold before, in fact, quite early in the book, back in chapter one, when we saw her in Dr. Van Ness's office. And later in this chapter, we're going to get to spend more time with her. But here at the beginning, it's really just her existence that we need to know about and to be reminded that Weir's relationship with his family must be going somewhere important because this has actually been signaled to us all the way back at the beginning of the book. Also, one thing that we learned in this paragraph is that there is now an amusement park outside of town. It's downriver and possibly on the exact spot where Weir and Margaret Lorne once hung out, this place where Weir tried to tell Julia Smart's ghost story to Margaret. I'm not sure if Valley Beach, that's the name of the amusement park, would be an all-that-fun place to visit. But its presence (laughs) here is certainly a sign that Cashinsville is prospering on some major level. I mean, someone decided there would be enough of a of a population, enough of a draw to support a small amusement park located on the outskirts of this town. So this factory must be doing real well. And I think we'll get more hints that that's the case as it continues. Let's talk about Shirley for a moment, and then we could talk about Aaron. Uh, you pointed out that Sherry is a nickname for Shirley, but Sherry is really hardly ever used as a, as a nickname for Shirley. Uh, Shirley is a name that comes from Old English words for Shire and Leah. So like it could be translated into bright wood or clearing or something along those lines, like a meadow. I don't know. Who knows? Sherry is a much more common nickname, though, for Sharon or Cheryl. And Sharon is another Hebrew name. And that one means like fertile plain. And you might think of the Rose of Sharon, right? This as a kind of uh, iconic flower in the uh, Bible. It specifically refers, though, to the flat land that is at the foot of Mount Carmel. Uh, But Sherry's name isn't Sharon. 
So all of that research is essentially moot and may have nothing to do with the book. (laughs) And uh, Wolf might just be leading us down a a blind alley here. But in any case, you also pointed out, Glenn, that Sherry is at the doctor's office at the beginning of the novel. She's whispering something to Ted Singer about a problem. And later it's revealed that her examination by the doctor requires her to be undressed. And Weir can't stop thinking about that. So we'll just have to keep that in mind. Yeah, and we, even back in chapter one, talked about how uncomfortable we were reading that part of the of the chapter, right? Where we have this older man really, really, really thinking about a minor in a, in a sexual way. And I think that we know that this probably isn't going, going anyplace good here in this relationship. And that, that will be borne out later in the chapter. It certainly will. Uh, Let's return to Aaron, though, now. You made a lot of hay, I suppose, out of pointing out how much everyone hates talkative people at uh, (laughs) at the Deuce Factory. But, you know, middle management in particular doesn't just hate talkative people. Weir indicates that they particularly have it out for talkative people without college degrees who are also fond of practical jokes, which seems hyper-specific. Like, it might just be a a population (laughs) of one that middle management doesn't (laughs) like. Um, But we've also met Aaron Gold before, too. On page 86 of the Orb 2012 edition, Weir is recalling a conversation he overheard between Aaron Gold and Ted Singer, where the closer to that argument was, you know, one of them saying that uh, something happened that was contrary to everyday experience. We we spent some time talking about that in our uh, episode covering that section. Ted Singer, I should point out, I've already brought up his name here, uh, he's the person sitting next to Sherry in the waiting room. We don't know much about him yet, though I think you know we wondered where Weir would have overheard Aaron Gold and Ted Singer having this conversation. And at the time, we thought maybe he was listening to high school kids talk, because that's also the section where Weir is thinking about high school kids having sex, or at least that was our interpretation. But I think it's more likely that Ted Singer worked at the factory during a time that overlapped with Aaron Gold. There might be one other explanation, which we can we can point out later in the chapter as well. My instinct is that that reading of that is is absolutely correct, Brandon. And I think something that I left out when I was introducing Sherry is just to say that she is in high school as we meet her now, right? That the way that we saw her back in chapter one, that is the way that she is now. So Weir is remembering in chapter one, he's remembering the Sherry Gold that we are meeting, you know, live here in chapter four, finally. Right. Uh, I have a few more things to say about Aaron Gold before we move on here. And one is just a a kind of, uh, I don't know, observation. And Aaron Gold really reminds me of the protagonist of Walker Percy's first novel, The Moviegoer, you know, except that Aaron Gold isn't really a philosopher. And if you've read The Moviegoer and read that first descriptive paragraph about Aaron Gold, how he loves to go to the movies and he's super into cars and he's always taking girls out, uh, that's the protagonist of that novel. So if you like characters like that, Maybe check out the moviegoer. I also want to point out here that Aaron's girls, according to Weir, always call Aaron Ron. And this is the second time in the book we've seen someone's nickname be the last half of their name. Earlier, we saw someone called Melissa, you know, the diminutive of that name Wolf gave us as Lisa. And I'm only pointing this out because it's an example of a trick that Wolf points out here, and then he doesn't really point it out again in his later fiction. You just have to put it together. If you've read Book of the New Sun 
this is explicit with the character uh, Dorcas, who is maybe introduced to us first as Cass. But before we move on, finally, Aaron, the name, is taken from the name of Moses's brother. And it may have some roots in Egyptian mythology, could refer to either a warrior lion or to the you know, level of heaven that Osiris rules. But Aaron in the Bible is the first high priest of the Israelites. And I'm just not sure if Wolf's use of this name is meant to evoke anything in particular other than to point to the sense that in Cashinsville, this family is, quote, supposed to be Jewish. Right. But I mean, we're seeing even right here that only half of the kids even have Hebrew names. And we, we have, I should say that years ago, before we even started on peace, we had a listener express some interest in talking largely about this chapter, about the way that Wolf is invoking Jewishness. So we're pointing out all of this here to to build up to doing that in the discussion episode, for sure. Right. The, this is the first example of many in this chapter of Weir or Wolf reminding us that Almost nobody in Cashinsville, at least none of the prominent people that Weir thinks about, are native to Cashinsville. And so this is this is a, an example that, especially like in this post World War II world, you know, that Wolf is particularly writing in in the seventies, that has a little bit more of a sting to it than I think we get with some of the other names and stories we come across in uh, this chapter. Well, let's carry on, Brandon, and go talk about Mr. Gold here. We get two paragraphs of description about him. Uh, We learn now that his name is Louis. uh, Louis A. Gold is his uh, full name there. And he is quite unlike Aaron in temperament. He's quiet and, and bookish. And now he's very much looking the part of the owner of an antiquarian bookshop, uh, complete with baggy suit and also foggy gold-rimmed glasses. Gold's bookshop in downtown Cashinsville used to be a shoe store. And when Gold moved into it, the space went through a kind of magical transformation. The lettering on the shop window that screamed, you know, newness and and novelty, right, when it was a shoe store, is now an antique patina that might have graced the great chalice of Antioch. Half of the overhead fluorescent lighting just extinguished itself because, you know, that type of lighting is, well, it's the devil's work and it certainly is not appropriate for a bookstore in any case. And then the other half of that fluorescent lighting is covered up by tall bookshelves now. And the shop is just full of books, really overrun with books. And Weir even wonders where they all came from. There are, of course, a lot of worthless, outdated, popular novels. Uh, I mean, it's not James Patterson or Tom Clancy. It's whatever the 1950s equivalent of that is, I guess. But there are also strange and interesting books as well. Uh, these are the technical works of little-known sciences, forgotten and eccentric tales, old books of verse, and the reminiscences of vanished circles of famous men who were known largely to each other. And Weir really likes this shop. He likes to stop by whenever conditions permit, uh, which means whenever he is nearby, and also the shop is open. And this actually does not happen very often because the shop is frequently closed during what probably ought to be regular business hours. And often during these moments when Weir is at the door of the shop, suddenly discovering that it's unexpectedly closed, he can tell that Gold is there in the back room. But Gold simply will not answer the door when Weir knocks. 
So Wolf's description of this bookshop and, and also the, the keeper of the bookshop is, I think, so clearly magical, Brandon, but it's magical as if described by an engineer who doesn't realize that it's a magical bookshop. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's like the shop that's described at the beginning of Michael Enda's The NeverEnding Story. And right. both, both Enda <laughs> and Wolf here, I think, perfectly capture that sense that you sometimes get when you wander into uh, like an old used bookstore that you've, that you've never been into before. That sense that you might encounter anything at all that you might find a book that would change your sense of what the world really is. I don't know. That's the promise of an old used bookshop to me anyway. And Wolf, I think, leans into that here, or Weird does, by referencing the way that the gold leaf lettering on the shop's window has that added patina to it that, you know, quote, might have graced the great chalice of Antioch, as, as you pointed out, Glenn, this reference to the Holy Grail here is used to enhance that sense of promise in walking into, you know, a new to you used bookshop. You're right to point out here that it's magical and it's marvelous. But there's a lot more going on to this section than just uh, us talking about our love of used bookstores here <laughs> that we need to talk about. The first thing I want to point out is uh, Wolf pointing out these vanished circles of famous men. I want to read this brief section because it may be relevant to an episode that takes place later on in the chapter. Uh, so here's the quote. There were strange and interesting books as well. The reminiscence of vanished circles of wits, of famous men who were known largely to each other, and who met, when they met at all, at enamel-top tables in cheap restaurants of New York, and talked mostly about jokes played after midnight in the corridors of second-rate hotels. Uh, I won't, you know, we'll point out why I read this, I think, in probably 16 episodes or something like that. But um, <laughs> this this really jumped out to me during this read. But the description here, just the raw description of these men, uh, reminds me on one level of the famous Algonquin Roundtable, though one of the most famous members of that crew was Dorothy Parker. So I don't quite know who we're referencing here, thinking about these vanished circles of wit in New York. There's also the Inklings, who I'm going to bring up later. That's the literary circle that included J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and, and many others, though they were British and hardly would have played pranks in New York City hotels. So I think Wolf might just be calling to mind this sort of group of critics and, and writers who hung out and maybe once in a while became the talk of the town in some capacity or another. Yeah, I don't think the inklings apply here, Brendan, no. <laughs> because I mean, Tolkien and Lewis are some of the, the, you know, two of the best known authors in the English language, right? And uh, I think that it really is. I think you're right in saying that, yeah, he's thinking about critics here. This this line, this bit is all about Wolf's disdain for the critical establishment, right? The literary critical establishment. Uh, this is something that he's written essays about. Perhaps we should even cover some of those someday. I mean, this real sense, right, of course, that speculative fiction is not worth their time. Uh, it's not worth the Academy's time either. That certainly was prevalent when Wolf was writing this book and for, for most of his career. And it was something that hurt Wolf on a, a profound level, I, th I think. And this is not the first place that we've seen him work this into a story. And I, I think that you're right, that that's, that's exactly what this is about here. We also get a reference here, Glenn, that you kind of blew by to uh, Lewis Gold's outfit. And Weir refers to Charles Curtis here to describe the type of clothing that the elder Gold wore. I didn't know 
who Charles Curtis was. So I had to look this up. Charles Curtis was initially a senator from Kansas who eventually rose in political power to become um, Hoover's vice president. He was a full member of the Caw Nation on his mother's side. And while Charles Curtis was the first you know, Native American to kind of become a state senator and then also the vice president, um, he wasn't super into preserving nation status for the Indian nations and tribes. And he passed laws and attempted to pass laws whose goal was to get the Native American peoples to assimilate into the broader U.S. culture by stripping them of their land holdings, essentially. I guess he was a part of the school of thought that thinks like, hey, if it worked for me to assimilate, I demand that it must work for everyone else. But yeah, I guess he also wore baggy suits, and that's the reference here. But we're going to see a lot of concerns about Charles Curtis's policies on on Wolf's part, I think, more than Weir's uh, threaded throughout this chapter. Right. I think everybody at this time, I mean, not not the time that this narrative is taking place, which we'll get to a little bit later, but certainly must be the 1950s. I mean, we all know from Mad Men that this is skinny suits era, right? <laughs> but yeah, the the whole 30s and 40s was, was baggy suit era. I mean, you can see that in any movie. And so it has to be pointed that that's the uh, simile, right? The reference that Weir is making here rather than to, I don't know, Humphrey Bogart or something like somebody like that, you know, an actor, right? That he's picked this politician for a reason. And I think I think that the the way that this politician intersects with one of the major motifs of this work, which is to say Native Americans, that's got to be that's got to be right. Yeah, it has to be. I mean, he could have picked one of the Marx brothers too. You know, this this is <laughs> this is a super pointed uh, uh reference here. All right. Well, so far all of this has just been a lot of setup for things that are actually going to pay off later in the chapter. But there is some action, there's some some narrative in this section too. So I'll get to that now. One day at work, Aaron wants to talk with Weir about books. Aaron wants to know if his father has ever offered to get a book for Weir. He hasn't, but Weir assumes that, you know, he he would do that if he asked him for a book that he didn't have. But that's not really what Aaron means. And the deal is this. Mr. Gold recently sold a rare book to Stuart Blaine, and he did so for an incredible amount of money. The book is called The Lusty Lawyer, and it's by Amanda Ross. Uh, We should talk about who that is, but let's get through the rest of this narrative first. So Weir has not even heard of this book, and we don't really learn here why Aaron is asking about it. I mean, he's asking Weir about it because Weir is the bookish person that Aaron knows, but what Aaron is after is not going to be clear to us in this episode. Nonetheless, Weir is curious about this. He's never heard about this book, and so he goes to the local library to see if there's a copy there. There isn't, and so he talks with a librarian who offers to use interlibrary loan to get one. Uh, Weir's doing that. He's going to take advantage of interlibrary loan, and that will come back later. But it is not really what this scene is about. As it stands right now, this business with the quest for a copy of The Lusty Lawyer is really just a setup for a potential meet-cute with the librarian. In the process of ordering The Lusty Lawyer, Weir asks the librarian to go to dinner with him. And she maybe agrees. It's not entirely clear. We're not actually going to find out until the next episode. But she initially says that she can't, and Weir casually doesn't accept that and asks what she has to do instead. He says that he doesn't see a wedding ring, so maybe it's that she has to go home to make dinner for her mother. 
And that's not it at all. The librarian is divorced, it turns out, but she has to stay here until six. And that's that's her reason for saying no here. And Weir doesn't accept that reason either. He says he'll wait. And then she tells him that he'll have to go wait in the car. She can't let him stay here uh, while the library is closing up. And I have to say, Brandon, that I was not really sure how to read this interaction here. Uh, To me, this had a kind of creepy Aaron Sorkin vibe, this whole, you know, badger the woman until she says yes, even though she's already said no, maybe several times type of thing that is in every Aaron Sorkin show, but especially the West Wing. (laughs) But I, you know, I don't think that that's how Wolf saw this scene. Listen, I'm sure Weir thinks he's being very smooth, but I do not read Weir as a character that Wolf admires right not not like really wolf is writing weird uh but he's it's not out of a sense of admiration or or fantasy wish fulfillment so i read this scene initially as a kind of screwball type of interaction you know like i imagine if i were filming this type of scene uh the way you know this is how sorkin does it would all be fast talking on the man's part and all eye rolling on the woman's part leading to this begrudging (laughs) acceptance of an invitation that feels a lot more like the woman's buying time than it does that she's actually happy she said yes but yeah you're right to point out here that it it, it weird does not give the librarian a choice and then he waits in his car in the parking lot so like he's really not leaving her with an option if she doesn't want to be accosted after work so there's really nothing in this scene especially when you know having read the whole chapter that makes me feel like wolf is looking back at some golden age of gender relations but I think Wolf is revealing something about Weir's character. And as I said, we will see more about how Weir relates to women in this chapter. And I don't think any of it paints Weir in a positive light. And we should be clear, of course, right, that this whole narrative is from Weir's perspective. It's also from the perspective of old and sick Weir who's alone in his mansion. And so, you know, we're not seeing this through a third person omniscient view like we might in a screwball comedy movie where we would be able to assess Weir a little bit more objectively, right? We're only getting him through his his own lens here. And it may very well be that actually he's extraordinarily awkward or something like that in this in this conversation and he just doesn't really know what he's doing. And so it's not really that creepy Aaron Sorkin vibe that we're getting so much as a kind of... Uh, ignorant incompetence or something something yeah. like that. Yeah, I guess you can't just say, I'm going to go wait in my car with my pocket knife, you know, until you come out after work. That, that's what I feel like we were actually said. You know, and that she's yeah, like, don't, okay, don't. I'll go get dinner with you. <laughs> yeah, don't say that. Also, just to be clear, don't do that. Right. Both are both are the wrong move. Uh, let, let's move on here to talk about Amanda Ross, you know, whose book, alleged book, I should say, The Lusty Lawyer, is really the, the central incident or, uh, I don't know, event of this chapter. Amanda Ross was real, it turns out, which was a surprise to me because what we learn about her in this chapter, even in this section, makes her seem like an impossible type of person. So what Weir says about her is true. She was an eccentric Victorian novelist with a penchant for alliteration. Uh, She primarily published between 1897 and 1912, really making her late Victorian and early Edwardian. She was also Irish. Ross lived until 1939, and her books are available via the Gutenberg Project if you'd like to sample some of her writing. She's amassed a reputation, especially throughout the second half of the 20th century, as one of the worst writers of all time. And in researching her, 
the pile on against her feels a little cruel, though I feel like it probably came out a, a little more slowly uh, in the like 30 years where people were talking about her as a writer. For instance, the Inklings, you know, who I mentioned before, uh, used to have competitions where they would see who could read her the longest without laughing uh, at a pub. You and I have done this in bookstores. We don't really do it anymore because, <laughs> you know, we're trying to get published and we're not. So who are we to laugh at a writer who's, who's able to get something yeah. in print? Um, but yeah, okay. Amanda Ross is a bad writer. Let me be clear. But it seems to me as though she's attracted the type of attention um, that we all give to those who find themselves in the public spotlight, who have delusions of grandeur. Like, you know, the first time we all saw someone talk themselves up when auditioning for American Idol, and then we heard them sing, and it was just like sublimely awful, or, you know, whatever the equivalent that is for you. Like, you know, when the guest judge Kenny Loggins told a psychic, singer who predicted that she'd win American Idol, uh, who ended up being a very bad singer, that she should also quit her day job, right? We all, we also, we all enjoy wits like that. But um, Amanda Ross seems to have fallen in that category of people who are easy to critique and criticize and laugh at. Uh, there's also a reference here to a biography about Amanda Ross that is also very real. It's called Oh Rare Amanda. This was written by Jack Loudon, and it was published in 1954. So this date should really help us nail down a timeline of this chapter as well. Uh, I don't really have much to say about Stuart Blaine because we're going to be spending some real time with him later. Yes, we're going to get a lot of time with Stuart Blaine. And actually, I'm, I'm quite excited about that. I think we might change our mind about some of the things that we've said about Stuart Blaine. But uh, Brandon, I just have to know, how much Amanda Ross did you read? I read um, the opening of uh, Irene Itisley, I think, uh, and just couldn't. I, it, it, the prose is so hard to parse. And, and we'll get an example of, you know, in our world, at least, The Lusty Lawyer is not a real book, of Wolf imitating that prose. And it's very difficult to make sense out of. And I just, I couldn't do it. I mean, especially not with having a, a, a two-month-old, um, you know, <laughs> nearby who needed my attention. Yeah, well, possibly you could be reading reading to him so he'll learn all about alliteration. Though, actually, that's probably a terrible way to encourage a child to learn language. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to backtrack us a little bit here, Brandon, and then we're actually going to have one more small section before we're done today. Weir has been peppering some autobiographical details into this section, but I have been ignoring them so that we could take them all together. At this point, too, I should also say that it is not clear when these events are happening. Other than that, Weir tells Aaron Gold that it has been 25 years since Olivia's death. So, Probably Weir is in his early 40s, and that this then probably is the late 1950s. But at any rate, Weir tells us briefly about his parents' return from Europe. And he remembers how much freedom he had when he was living with Olivia. In particular, Olivia never fussed over what he was wearing. That was entirely up to Weir. It was up to Weir to remember to wear a jacket when it was cold and that sort of thing. But when his parents finally came home and he returned to living in his own house with, with them, his mother used to fuss over this sort of thing. Clearly, Weir thinks now, this was to make up for the fact that she had basically abandoned him for several years. And so now she's sort of micromanaging him or helicopter parenting, I think is the term that we would use now. But we also learn at this point that Weir's parents are dead. 
And he presents this as, since my mother died. And so we also then can infer that his mother outlived his father. But his aunt Arabella, by the way, she is still alive at this point. Uh, Arabella, we'll recall, is his mother's sister. We've met her before. But anyway, this phrase, since my mother died, this is part of Weir's explanation that he sold this house. He sold his childhood home, the house that he always calls his grandmother's house. And we knew this was going to happen, right? Weir has alluded to this before. And now at this point in the story, probably the late 1950s, he is living alone in an apartment. And we have all of this information before Weir goes to the library. And so that's going to inform how we read some of the things that are happening here in the library. When Weir is in the library, the librarian explains that this building used to be a private house. There's a Greek cupola on the roof, and the librarian says that she has never been up there, but that she would have loved going up there as a child. And in response to this, Weir says this, and I'm actually just going to read the text here. There used to be a trap door in the attic. You pushed it up with a pole and leaned an old ladder nailed together from flooring against the edge when you had it open. The upper side of the door, inside the temple, was higher than the rest of the roof by an inch or so, and covered with sheet copper so it didn't leak. I used to climb up there and dangle my legs over the coping and look at the endless sky. And so the question has to be, Brandon, is this Weir's grandmother's house, right? Did Weir sell the house to the town and the town is now using his childhood home as the library? So that was my first instinct, too, when I read this, because there's a breadcrumb trail that you pointed out uh, left in this chapter that makes it really easy to associate the sale of Weir's grandmother's house with the town using that house of a library. But I think that this is a misdirect. I'm pretty sure that this is Aunt Olivia's house. In chapter two, we get a pretty thorough description of Aunt Olivia's house as being two stories with an attic. It has a green roof. We associated that with moss, but it's more likely that the copper on the roof has turned green. The house is also described as having a dome and a cupola, just like the library. So it's bizarre, right? Because the hints in this chapter are that it's Weir's grandmother's house. So I'm not really sure what to make of Aunt Olivia's house being the town library. I guess it's fitting in a sense since she was the you know town's culture of one. Maybe Smart sold it after Aunt Olivia died. Yeah, or or perhaps uh, if if that's the case, I, I would suspect actually that perhaps Smart even donated it to the town uh, to use as as the library and sort of took a, took a tax write off rather yeah. <laughs> than uh, you know having to deal with the profits of of the sale. I mean, we know that by the time uh, Olivia died, that the the business was was doing well, right? That the juice factory had been started and was doing really well, so that Smart wouldn't have have needed that money. And this is actually a really good thing to do with the house, and also I think. This would make sense, right? As you say, in thinking about who Olivia was, that that would be a really awesome thing to do for her, right? To do for the memory, in the memory of your your wife who has died young, you know, unexpectedly and and tragically. Yeah, and that's that's kind of my read of the the situation here. But this chapter is really, really tricky. I want to point out also that we get um, the first mention of Arabella that we've had in a really long while. And I want to use this as an opportunity to clear up a blunder I made that seems so obvious to me now in hindsight. In chapter three, Aunt Olivia talks about how her sister-in-law loves ghost stories. And we talked about that as a reference to Weir's mother. I, I brought it up as a reference to Weir's mother and how that would have been painful for 
Alden sitting there with Aunt Olivia saying that, you know, I wish your mom were here because she would have loved this. But that's not the case. Olivia is referring to Arabella, who was the founder of the Cashinsville Spiritualist Society and is like super into ghosts. But that's another example where it's easy to assume that Olivia is talking about Weir's mom because Arabella is so infrequently mentioned. I guess that's another misdirect. Interesting. Yeah. I I wonder actually if that's true. I'm going to push back on that a little bit, Brandon, because we need to remember, right, that it's Weir's father who is from Cashinsville and not his mother. So I don't know that Arabella ever lived in Cashinsville, right? That Arabella and Weir's mother grew up, you know, wherever they had Christmas back when Weir was was six in in, in chapter one. You know, we speculated about where that might be. So you know, it, it it could be it could be still Weir's mother. We might need to revisit that. We are, you know, you're you're hinting at something we're going to get a little bit later in chapter four, <laughs> right. so that might be the place to 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 speculate about that a little bit more. But that had not occurred to me. But I think that this is a good question. Yeah, it is. I think it's a question we'll have to take up. I'm going to stick by my reading as I often do, and uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll just keep moving on with the with the story here. Right. I mean, it makes for better radio when we stick to our yeah. guns and actually have some point of conflict, right? <laughs> well, all right. We're coming to the end today with some short scenes in Weir's present, uh, by which I mean the present where he, as an old man, is writing all of this down. Weir thinks about this endless sky that he used to look at when he was a child, and it occurs to him that... That sky must be the only thing left unchanged since his childhood. Uh, He also thinks about his current house, this museum mansion that he's living in. It turns out that he's got an elevator in this house that will take him to the attic. And he thinks again about how he's in the simulation of his old office from when he was the president of the juice company. But he also says that he hopes he's not. He hopes, I think desperately a little bit, that he's in the real thing and that his secretary is going to bring him some coffee. And then the last paragraph that we'll cover today, which is really its own section, uh, is also back in the present. The first line of this is, what was her name? And I guess this must be the librarian. So I don't know, maybe this meet cute is not really going to go anywhere. But Weir continues on. He's, he's reflecting about where he is. He, he knows he's in his house and that there will not be any coffee. There are some things in his replica desk here. There's a, a few stale cigarettes, a, a picture of a girl with a clockwork elephant. Uh, this is a picture taken in front of the juice factory with the giant orange that stood outside. Uh, so, you know, this is where we know that it's orange juice specifically that Julia Smart's factory produces. And then I want to note two other moments that are not from the present where Weir is recovering from a stroke, but that I didn't include anywhere else here in the recap and which I think are germane to the overlapping times here. First is that during the meet-cute with the librarian, Weir has to give her his phone number for the interlibrary loan request, and he gives her the wrong type of phone number. He gives her a seven-digit phone number. But the librarian says that that's not how phone numbers work. That's just totally not right. And then he corrects himself and gives her a number with an exchange in front of it. And then the second bit is that the librarian quotes Stuart Blaine. Uh, She doesn't say that she's doing that, and there is no reason at all to think that she has ever met Stuart Blaine. But when Weir tells her that he mostly reads fiction and history, she says, you should try biography. Someone said that it was the only history. And yeah, that's, that's a sentiment that we had from Blaine back in chapter two. So something 
something timey-wimey is happening here, perhaps. Yeah, indeed. Things feel as though, I should say time, feels as though it's both unraveling for Weir and then also kind of coalescing at the same time in this weird way. He's slipping in and out of time, and it's really getting harder to ignore, especially in this chapter. And it feels like it ought to be leading to some revelation about his situation. But Weir is slow to recognize what's going on, or... It may be more likely the case that Weir knows exactly what's going on, and we as readers are slow to recognize it. We've been struggling with which is the case of you know those options throughout the novel. I think this chapter will give us a clearer answer as to whether or not Weir is in control of the narrative or kind of being pulled through time through through some other, I don't know, whim, I suppose, of, of fancy or fate. But whatever the case is, it feels to me as though Weir is somehow moving through his memories as if he's reliving these moments caught in some sort of replay where the outcome doesn't change, but these other small details do. And we may have to ask ourselves why this is the case. I'm glad you feel that this question is going to be settled somewhere in this chapter, because I'm I'm not sure, Brandon, so you'll have to point that out to me when we get there. I will point it out to you when we get there, if I'm remembering this chapter correctly. Uh, but I, I certainly have a reading of the book after reading this chapter, and, and that's, that's why I expressed concern at the top of the show, that I'm really concerned about reading chapter five, because I feel on pretty solid ground at this point, uh, but I'm afraid Wolf's going to slip the rug out from under me. But all of that is is to come in, in more episodes down the road. That's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. If you would like to support the network and also hang out with me and Valerie while we talk about the Star Trek The Next Generation movies, please join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Media. Next time, we're going to be reading pages 212 to 219 in the Orb 2012 edition, which has us reading up through the line, I wrote her a check, for those of you who are reading along in other editions. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>